Hi everyone, my name is Melissa Lee and I'm your health coach who targets women with PCOS and women in general who wants to achieve stubborn weight loss. I do my best work when I work with PCOS urban women in their 30s who are embarrassed about their weight but want to feel comfortable in their bodies and are able to lose stubborn weight naturally. In this podcast, we talk about various topics including why stubborn weight loss is so hard to achieve. If this is you, definitely put this in your podcast list because one episode will be released every single week. Hi everyone, today I would like to introduce you to Diana Lane. She's an acupuncturist, herbalist, and Reiki master. I'm really excited to have Diana on to speak about how she blends Eastern medicine practices with Western medicine in order to help women in their wellness. She has a clinic called Moon Medicine Healing Arts in Austin, Texas, and has a lot to share in the podcast today. Um, And this is also the first time that I'm going to be talking with um, kind of an alternative health practitioner about PCOS, weight loss, and in general, women's health. So welcome, Diana. It's so great to meet you. Thanks, Melissa. I'm so excited to be here and to share today. I know that women's health is at the forefront of a lot of our minds right now, and I'm really excited to share. Yeah, it's great. So for all our listeners who are kind of not familiar with the whole Eastern medicine thing, um, maybe you could share about how you actually came into this realm. I do know that you went to you know, the normal medical school uh, in the past. Yeah, I love it. So part of my story is that I was in the ballet industry when I was really young. I was a dancer and had a really unhealthy relationship with my body. I was battling multiple eating disorders and just finding that I was in general pretty unhealthy, even though from the outside perspective, I looked thin and in shape. And not only that, but I was really unhappy on top of it. So while I was in high school, I had this wake-up call and I realized that taking care of my body like a temple was the most important thing. And then I started realizing how many people in the world were unhealthy and needed support in these realms. So I was like, I'm going to be a doctor, obviously. You know, that's the, the route that I think a lot of kids dream about going down. And I decided I wanted to be a cardiothoracic heart surgeon. I was like, I want to be a heart doctor. What better way to help the world than to heal hearts? And so I dove into that. I was really ready to take my nutrition under control. So that was the first avenue was nutrition to doctor. And then I went into the pre-med program at Western Washington University up in Bellingham. I was head first into all the chemistry and the physics and the biology and getting all of my prereqs done. I had even gone to the University of Washington's, they do a discovery days kind of thing, which is one of the best medical schools in the West Coast. It would get me prepared for Harvard or Stanford. I mean, I was aiming for the moon and the stars. And I got into my cardiothoracic rehab internship in my undergrad, which is where you go and you spend three months in the rehab program. And we got to see heart surgery, which I loved. It was so cool watching doctors work to, you know, literally save somebody's life. And then they'd come into the rehab program and I'd start noticing things like they'd be throwing out a McDonald's cup on the way in or smelling like booze and cigarettes. And I kind of started asking questions about lifestyle interventions and what we could do to encourage them to drink more water and maybe work on some of the addictions and the habits. And they more or less looked at me and said, that's not your job. 
get them on the machines, make sure they're taking their prescriptions and send them on their way. Mm -hmm. And then I started realizing that people were coming back. They'd have two or three stents in their heart, their second coronary artery bypass, and their mortality rates were just astonishing. You know, they told me you were lucky if you got five years. And it just dawned on me that there had to be a better way. I, I had this really big epiphany that I wanted to get to people before they were at that point. And so I looked into everything, right. physical therapy, occupational therapy, you know, you go down that route of what's next. Yeah, all the therapies. <laughs> yeah, like what, what else can I do? And ultimately acupuncture and Chinese medicine made the most sense. The way they talked about it, the more I learned it was such a comprehensive and holistic system. So that really made the most sense to me to get into the the more diverse healing that really treats the person as a whole and is, is used as a preventative measure as well. Yeah, that's awesome. I think, you know, usually the conventional medical school, they only, they are, you know, they're great for like acute emergency situations, but when yeah. you're looking at preventing the, you know, the condition in the first place is definitely to get lifestyle. I love that you're coming from this kind of perspective because it really, um, you know, it brings us to why you would be in this Eastern medicine, Chinese medicine kind of practicing uh, place right now. So tell us more about this whole Chinese medicine thing. Yeah, so it's really cool because Chinese medicine is so diverse. The toolbox is huge for healing. And what I love the most about it is it takes everything into consideration. So we talk a lot about root and branch treatments. So the branches are the things that we see, right? They're the part of the tree, the part of the person, the symptoms, the experiences, the things that they actually are expressing. But the cool thing about Chinese medicine is it gets down to the root it gets down to the constitution to make the deep changes because everything comes from a source. Usually it's a type of an imbalance, right? It can be like um, too much of something or too little of something, an, an excess or a deficiency. And I find these concepts to be super powerful because it's all about rebalancing the system. And then by doing so, we're able to look at the way certain things are affecting our bodies. For example, if Heat, heat is my favorite example to use. You think about the middle of the summer, the way it's super sweltering hot, people's faces are red, they're sweating, they might be a little bit more irritable, maybe not as hungry, definitely more thirsty, and it's this very active time. And that is literally the influence of heat, summer heat on our bodies and on our systems. So what do we do? We cool with things like cucumbers and everyone's eating watermelon in the summer. This is food grade medicine that people are using to really work to rebalance their bodies. So I love that it takes an environmental factor into consideration, mm -hmm. takes an emotional factor into consideration, also does kind of more of a mind body approach. It uses herbs, it uses lifestyle modification. What I love about traditional Chinese medicine is it's very comprehensive and it is proven by science. Science over and over again is proving the validity and the use of acupuncture in Chinese medicine, which I'm a science nerd at heart. So that, that tends to my Western side, I suppose. <laughs> it sounds like uh, it's, you know, it's a like seasonal eating, isn't it? Like you go according to the weather and like foods that are grown in specific seasons. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when you think about what's happening in the winter, you know, people, uh, especially in China, would be eating things more like congee and stews and stuff like that. Whereas in the summer, they're eating lighter things like cabbages and cucumbers. And that can be a really beneficial approach to nutrition and to health is just paying attention to what's happening seasonally and the way that foods themselves can heat or cool us. You think about cayenne super spicy, super warming or turmeric. That's a hot food right there. So yeah. using that during cold times can be much more beneficial. Mm -hmm. And I like that you painted the picture of like an integrative tree because that's kind of also the work that I do. It's more of addressing, you know, the whole body as like a bigger picture rather than just kind of addressing certain symptoms. Um, and then I also like that you talked about the whole um, you know, deficiency and excess thing. And also I heard of this term called stagnation in Chinese medicine. Mm -hmm. Is that right? Yeah, totally. And so stagnation is a really prominent component. So beyond the excess and deficiency, there can be other aspects like phlegm, dampness, hot, cold, stagnation. Mm -hmm. You can have qi stagnation. You can have blood stagnation. You can have a accumulations of phlegm, which is what we're talking about with PCOS, is the way that phlegm accumulates around the ovarian areas. And so these are all aspects of the way things, including energy or blood or fluids, are moving through our body. So stagnation is a really prominent concept, especially liver cheese stagnation, which a lot of women deal with, a lot of people in general deal with, and then phlegmatic stagnations, which can create nodules or abscesses or cysts as well. So what does this stagnation do? Like it kind of, it makes the body inflame or what does it do? Yeah. So a good analogy is to think about either a kink or a rock stuck in a hose. Like think about a watering hose and the way we want things to be flowing through that hose. Now, if there's a big kink in the hose or a knot in the hose or say a rock or something stuck that's creating a stagnation, it can create a swelling. And not always does stagnation create swelling necessarily. However, this concept of thinking that if something's like stagnant, like a stagnant pool of water and it's not moving, it's not fresh, it's not refreshed. And in those stagnations is where friction can occur. So you can have both swellings. You can also have heat because if you think about like, I'm going to make a sound right now, two hands rubbing together like this, when you yeah. rub your hands together, there's a friction there and that friction can actually create heat. And so stagnation can lead to many different varieties of other conditions because if things are not flowing properly and they're not expressing themselves and moving through the body properly, it can create irritability, it can create friction. Phlegm stagnation obviously can create accumulations and this can lead to a whole other subset of conditions or pathogenic influences as well. Because we want blood and lymph and fluids and food and nutrients and all of these things to be moving through the body as opposed to stagnant. Okay, and so now I have a question. When you were talking about blood uh, circulation, it kind of brought brought me to like the whole period thing. Um, so during the you know the menstrual cycle, what's is there like a particular area where it's stagnated, you know, or is that how we just normally detox? 
Yeah. So with the cycle itself, you know, what's happening is we're getting buildup of endometrial lining in the uterus, which is totally natural and normal. This is our life giving ability, which is the beautiful thing about the cycle that I don't think is as celebrated as it could be. Um, so during this time, you know, the liver is responsible for dredging the chi, for moving the chi, the energy, which is also known as ATP in the Western world. So as the energy moves and as the endometrial lining and the, the uterus begins to contract, what's happening is energy is moving through the body to clear it out. And so with symptoms like endometriosis, for example, blood is stagnating in that area. So things are not moving as smoothly and that can create the cramping. So when there's a stagnation in that area, that can influence the way we have painful periods. So when we have cramps, a lot of times they're relieved when the cycle comes because that stagnation starts to move through. And so liver cheese stagnation and menstrual irregularities are a really common correlation. However, there's more including stagnation in the chong, which is the, the uterine area or blood stagnation, or there could also be cold stagnating in that area. So there's a variety of things that can influence that. Liver cheese stagnation yeah. is our primary um, you know, PMS culprit though. Yeah, I bet. I mean, even, um, you know, in the Western or like the holistic healing world, there's a lot of talk about, you know, detoxing and enhancing the liver's capability of moving excess estrogen out of the body. And I think PCOS women will be very familiar with that because they, you know, they usually have more estrogen than progesterone. And that's why eating all these vegetables that can help the liver is very important. Yeah. Um, so for PCOS women, what is actually kind of happening? Like, because we have irregular periods, you know, we have higher mm -hmm. levels of testosterone. So in terms of the Chinese medicine, what, what's kind of happening there? Yeah. So of course, for every woman, it's going to be different because the cool thing about the Chinese medical world is when we talk about getting to the root of what's going on, there's not very commonly are there one set of this is your diagnosis. So with PCOS in the Chinese medical world, there's going to be other cofactors in it. So it could be maybe a spleen chi deficiency as in our body's ability to process is not working as well. It could be this liver chi stagnation. But the biggest thing with PCOS is the accumulation of phlegm. And so when phlegm congeals and accumulates in the system and around the ovaries specifically, it can create that type of stagnation we're talking about, where then when the uterine lining tries to contract and tries to release, the body is unable to move through it. And then the, the phlegmatic nodules and the liver chi stagnation can create significant pain. Now, there's usually other imbalances as well, whether that's coming from the kidneys with some hormonal imbalances or some other organs that can be involved. However, PCOS in the Chinese world has a lot to do with the phlegmatic accumulation. Right. And where does this phlegm come from? Sorry, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm very sciencey, so I'm just like always curious as to, oh, how did that happen? No, I love it. It's really multifactorial, right? So it can come from foods we eat. It can come from stress. It can come from our UN chi or our original chi. So things that are part of like what we've already accumulated from our genetics. But really phlegm can come from just an imbalance of the body's ability to clear the dampness 
-hmm. or the body's ability to let go of the accumulations and the stagnations. And so a lot of times it can be both internal and external forces, including our environment. Mm -hmm. If we live in a really damp environment, we talk about the accumulations of dampness and fluids in the body. And then when you either add hot or cold to those, that can also kind of condense the fluids down into be a phlegmatic accumulation. So those are kind of the components that I really look for is what are the environmental factors? What are the internal factors? And what kind of foods can influence that? Or is the person eating a ton of sugar? Are they eating a ton of carbs? Those definitely can enhance the accumulation of phlegm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a big one because 80% of PCOS women, you know, have insulin resistance. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a, that's definitely one of the biggest factors that contribute to the stagnation. Um, yeah. So, well, and it's interesting you say that because, you know, the insulin resistance and problems in the digestive realm, we talk about the spleen deficiency in Chinese medicine. And the spleen is the great processor also paired with the pancreas. And it is usually the root of phlegm. So, you know, if you're not dispersing from the kidneys or you're not letting the lungs circulate the way they're supposed to with the way they influence fluids, the spleen is definitely the primary factor, but these other organs can get involved. So digestive components are a big aspect and dysbiosis, including bacterial imbalances can be another big contributing factor. Okay. So in terms of solutions, I'm thinking, you know, thinking, taking care of the gut health. Um, but I'm not really sure about how do we take care of our spleen? Like I know for liver, but, you know, spleen is not really a huge organ that we usually talk about in the Western world. Totally. So, <laughs> so what, what does it actually do? And like, how do we kind of enhance its ability to process things? Yeah. So one of the things about eating for the spleen is that the spleen doesn't necessarily like processing cold raw and damp foods. And I'm sorry for the raw vegans out there. I know that that diet works for some people, but cold, raw and damp foods are really challenging for the spleen. So it's better to eat slightly sauteed foods, slightly warmed foods. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and that's one of the major aspects and really evaluating how cold of water are you drinking? You know, so that's another component that I teach a lot of my patients is to do cool water as opposed to cold water. So, of course, eating highly processed foods does not help the spleen because the spleen's all about intake. It's all about distributing the nutrients, helping to process them. And the digested food is utilized by the stomach and the spleen and then is shared with the rest of the body. So, really drinking cool water, but making sure you're adequately hydrated, eating warmer foods, fresh vegetables that are lightly sauteed, and really just being clear about the way your emotions can affect this. Because not only the processing of foods, but the processing of emotions. So if you're eating standing up, please just give yourself some space to sit down. If you're like shoveling food in your face and running from meeting to meeting, you know, (laughs) take a minute and just allow yourself to really sit down and enjoy your food because those aspects can make a really big difference. I'm also trying to be a little aware of the spicy foods because spicy foods can be pretty intense for the spleen. And then obviously damp foods or heavy foods like dairy, sugar, 
alcohol, processed foods, those can really make a big detriment to the spleen as well. That's really sad for me because I like spicy food. <laughs> so I might have been eating too much of it before. <laughs> well, and that's the thing, constitution-wise, you might be fine to eat spicy food. A little bit of spicy food sometimes, totally fine, but it's when we eat it in excess that can be a really right. hard thing to process. Yeah. And, and it's not over... Oh, go ahead. Huh? Sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, and then not overeating, of course. If you eat too much and don't chew very well, that can make it really challenging for the spleen to process. So taking some space to relax, to enjoy your food, chewing well, and then utilizing some warmer foods as well. It's interesting that you said, you know, it's better to be inclined to warmer foods because when I was growing up, you know, uh, my family in Singapore or people in Singapore will always tell me not to drink cold drinks during menstruation because it can worsen the cramps or it can worsen like certain symptoms and in Ayurveda they also you know they don't believe in like drinking water during eating because it can extinguish that digestive fire so when you're talking about the spleen now I'm thinking of like oh it's just like a central thing in my body that's like heated and like trying to assimilate all these foods is that a good kind of good vision (laughs) that's a good way to think about it for sure and it's so cool like culturally because in those east asian regions they really have an awareness around the ways foods are affecting us so it's really neat to hear that that's like part of your upbringing you're thinking about it you're like oh yeah they told me not to drink cold waters during that time and so thinking about it in a homeostasis way let's let's get western about it let's get scientific about it Mm -hmm. our body temperature usually fluctuates somewhere around 98.6 right that's commonly known so when you're putting something in your body that is you know anywhere from 30 to you know 40 something degrees your body actually has to spend energy it has to spend atp it has to put chi and effort into warming that water up so it can actually end up dehydrating you more kind of the counterintuitive of what we would think yeah and like you know people with thyroid problems they might you know they might not have the full capacity to really kind of mm, regulate the temperature of the body is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. With thyroid issues that can even further enhance the inability to um, have difficulties with temperature, thermoregulation. Okay. Yeah. Um, So I just kind of want to delve into the healing modalities of your practice. I know you do a lot of Reiki and acupuncture. Uh, Could you share with us a little bit more about that? Totally. So it's really wonderful having such a vast toolbox of different skills that I can use. So the primary things I use are acupuncture, herbal and supplemental medicine, and Reiki. I also love doing guided meditations. I think relaxation and sacred self-care is so important. I teach my patients some breathing techniques and give them some tools for different meditation apps and ways to meditate because I'm just going to give you a little secret. You can't really do it wrong. The practice of meditation is bringing the mind back over and over and over again. I hear all the time, I try, but I'm doing it wrong. Yeah. And I always ask what that means. Yeah. Yeah. So um, beyond that, I also utilize different lifestyle interventions. So we talk about some of these food grade medicines or these ways that they can enhance their wellness and reduce stress. I also use some crystal and some sound therapy. So I'll use 
singing bowls and different crystals that have different energies and properties to just further enhance the healing, including neuro-linguistic programming. So it's a, a talk technique that helps the subconscious mind create new patterns and new habits. And I'll share tapping techniques and cord cutting. It's a pretty, pretty incredible and widespread experience, very multifaceted. Yeah, you have a pretty expensive toolkit there. So like if someone goes to you, you're like, huh, which modality should I choose? <laughs> yeah. yeah, so acupuncture and this type of medicine, it's an accumulative medicine. It's like working out, you know, you don't just like work out once and you're buff for life. So when you really get the full experience, when you create a lifestyle out of this type of wellness and this holistic medicine being part of your life wellness plan. I see. And so I have actually gone for acupuncture before and also taking, you know, some Chinese herbs for my irregular periods. Um, so about acupuncture, um, how, how do you use it in PCOS? Yeah, so acupuncture and PCOS is really incredible because we can work on balancing the endocrine system and reducing stress, as well as clearing the accumulations of phlegm, dampness, and getting the stagnation to move. So each session would be a little bit different, but I would utilize points that are really specific towards supporting the liver, supporting the spleen, clearing the phlegm and the dampness and really re-energizing and revitalizing the body. It's really cool because there are other schools of thought in acupuncture that have evolved over the last, it's been uh, 5,000 years that it's been in use. And even over the last couple hundred years, new techniques like the master dong style of technique comes in. And there's very specific points that are specifically like tailored towards recalibrating the female hormonal system. So those would be our primary approaches would be mm -hmm. to balance the hormonal system, reduce stagnation. I would probably teach the patient about castor oil packs, which are an easy to use thing. If you don't already know about them, check out Wellness Mama Castor Oil Packs. Mm -hmm. She has some yeah. great guides for that. Mm -hmm. And uh, we'd really work on a series of helping the body to reset itself and to realign with the herbal medicine, the acupuncture, and the other lifestyle techniques for the most comprehensive approach. Nice. And, and you did say, you know, acupuncture is accumulated. So mm -hmm. I'm guessing also like if PCOS women, they have problems with fertility, they would also do, you know, acupuncture to help them with that. Yeah, acupuncture is actually really well researched for its benefits in enhancing fertility. It's even being used in a lot of Western medical hospitals, both pre-insemination and post-insemination, or even better yet, if you commit to the course with the herbs and do the lifestyle modifications, I, I jokingly say this, but I've gotten my patients pregnant multiple times and seen them through their whole course, through everything, through conception to birth, to help, um, to help uh, allow the baby to arrive and to help induce pregnancy. But a series is the best recommendation. Probably about three months of weekly treatments is the most ideal approach. And then getting on a maintenance schedule. My goal is to get every patient on a maintenance schedule so that they come in to maintain their health. They come in to just enhance their vitality. And then we start switching to like every other week or every three weeks is kind of the sweet spot for maintenance. Yeah, I love that. And what about like other techniques like uh, cupping or gua sha? 
I love that you brought those up. Those are some of my favorite <laughs> modalities to use. Cupping and gua sha are really great for hypercirculation in the body. So they work on a fascial level. And what cupping does is it kind of suctions the back, or you can also do it on the abdomen at times or other areas. It can be used for cellulite as well. And so cupping, it can even be used on the face to enhance facial glow and texture and tone. Oh, it actually, yeah, it's a cool technique. It's really yeah. cool. Wait, would, um, they, would they go around with like the circles? marks on their face after <laughs> <laughs> that's a really great question because cupping can leave marks especially in areas where there's a lot of stagnation like on the back on the face we use much smaller cups much mm -hmm. lighter application and they move pretty quickly so they're not going to create the same little uh michael phelps suction marks on the face like they do on the back yeah. so <laughs> Good question. Because <laughs> I can't imagine like people, you know, walking around with that. But I definitely, I have seen a lot of people doing, um, having those marks on the back. Yeah. And so those are signs of deep rooted stagnation or areas where blood has gotten stuck or congealed in the body. And with the cupping marks, the reason they come out is because the body has awareness now to go in and to clean that area up. So it'll move fresh lymph and fresh blood into that area to help repair the cellular structures and help the body flush out those old stagnations and move in fresh blood and fresh lymph. So the darker the marks, the deeper the stagnation. I carry a lot of stress in my neck and back and shoulders. So when I get cupping, especially if I haven't done it in a while, I get some pretty, pretty purple little circles on my back. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting. Uh, does anyone, can anyone do cupping or, you know, some people are better for acupuncture and some are better for cupping? Yeah. So I definitely recommend um, having your acupuncturist decide whether or not cupping is right for you in cases of significant deficiency, where maybe the person is um, frail or not feeling very vital and strong, mm -hmm. cupping could actually be kind of tiring and exhausting. Mm -hmm. uh, what is definitely applicable towards certain body types and towards certain constitutions. So sometimes uh, I like the combination. I pretty much use the combination most of the time, acupuncture and cupping, mm -hmm. but gua sha might be more applicable for maybe someone who's very petite or even the elderly where the skin is thin, you have to be really cautious about things like that. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. And so what is gua sha? Yeah, so gua sha is more of an abrasion technique or a scraping technique. And you use typically a stone or a round ceramic item. And gua sha, while similar to cupping in the fact that it's removing myofascial adhesions, increasing circulatory flow, and enhancing that body's ability to clean up areas of stagnation, because it's a pressure technique, you kind of rub against the muscle layer. It's different than the suction technique. So gua sha can also be used on the face, can also be used for cellulite. Um, shout out and also interesting that Ashley Black with the fascia blaster that concept is similar to gua sha because you're pushing through the fascia. Now that way can be a little bit damaging to the fascia because the little knobs can kind of tear through the fascia. Mm -hmm. Whereas gua sha uses a flat and a smooth tool to really help work through the fascial layers and relieve those adhesions and the areas that lactic acid or other stagnations have built up. 
I wish you were in LA so I can go to <laughs> <for> some uh, <laughs> techniques now. Um, that sounds yeah. amazing. Um, so about, so all these techniques, I mean, I'm guessing they usually come with, you know, a combination of like herbs that you usually give to your patients. Yes, absolutely. So it's very rare that someone will come in and just get acupuncture. Okay. Usually with my treatments, they're getting acupuncture and Reiki, acupuncture and Reiki and meditation and herbs. It's all tailored specifically towards that patient's needs. So there is quite a few combinations of things that can be really helpful for that. Um, you know, I really love the golden flower herbs line. They're compressed, really high quality herbs as well as evergreen herbal formulas. And they have ones that are tailored specifically to help um, remove phlegm or to help with liver chi stagnation or basically to help with menstrual issues, including PCOS. So I mm -hmm. highly recommend getting on a solid herbal regimen and seeing a licensed practitioner and acupuncturist to support yeah. you or integrative medicine practitioner to support you in getting the right herbs for your constitution. Mm -hmm. And yeah, like I would, I mean, usually, you know, people would start off with testing first to even, you know, look at their, their you know, deficiencies and where they're lacking, right? Yeah, definitely. I mean, the cool thing with Chinese medicine is that testing can only support the diagnosis. Mm -hmm. However, it's not nece always necessary, but with something like PCOS, it can be a lot more beneficial or infertility, a lot more beneficial mm -hmm. to know where the imbalances are coming from, because that can help tailor the herbal recommendations and the supplemental recommendations. So mm -hmm. doing something like the extended female hormone panel would be a great approach. Or um, also the GI maps testing would be wonderful because both of those can help figure out what's going on with the digestive system and the endocrine system because they're very closely related. And if you have a really bad gut imbalance like candida overgrowth or C. diff or just dysbiosis in general, that can definitely be fueling the PCOS or the other menstrual issues. Oh, that's interesting. So definitely not only nutrition, but specifically also, you know, nutrition and gut health. That's a really big one. Yeah, gut health is so important for these types of imbalances. Um, so speaking of, you know, all these like women's health topics, a big problem or a big struggle that women have is weight loss. Mm -hmm. um, so weight loss, is it also related to stagnation, I'm guessing, or some sort of uh, deficiency in the body? Totally. It's a combination. So the overarching concept of weight loss are accumulations of dampness, you know, feeling kind of that, like that puffiness, that adipose tissue and things like that. And also usually a spleen chi deficiency. So the spleen is probably not processing foods and nutrients the proper way. And then we have all these other accumulations a lot of it does boil down to diet and then, of course, the way that the organs are functioning around the way the diet is influencing them. I see. Okay. So it just, it goes back to the spleen and it goes back to the center of the body and all the processing. <laughs> yeah, it totally does. The spleen and the stomach, you know, that's our middle jowl. That's our central processing system. Mm -hmm. it, it does a lot for us. And, you know, the things that we put into it can definitely influence the way we feel and the weight that we hold. Yeah. And then, so what are, you know, what are your favorite foods for weight loss? 
Yeah. So there are a couple different teas that I like using for weight loss. There's one called Bojenmi. That's B-O-J-E-N-M-I-T. And it's known as a slimming tea. It's um, really tasty and can be really yummy as an addition for that. But obviously my number one recommendation would be to really increase your high quality organic fruits and vegetables, high quality grass fed organic free range meats for those of you who do eat meat and limiting the amount of meat. We've gotten to a point in our society where a lot of people eat meat every meal every day and that can be detrimental as well for the system because that type of protein process is slower. So for sure eating just really good fruits, veggies as your primary source of food and then enhancing the high quality meats that you eat. There's other foods that can help with phlegm as well though. So if you're not already into trying things like mushrooms, water chestnut, watercress, as well as seaweed. So nori and seaweed can be really beneficial. Um, Other things are like some herbs and some spices like basil, fennel, garlic, ginger, horseradish. These all benefit the middle jowl licorice, ground pepper, rosemary, and thyme. I highly recommend adding those into your environment. And then um, other beverages like elderflower tea and jasmine tea can be really helpful as well as peppermint. These all benefit phlegm and help to clear out the digestive system. So increasing your ginger and garlic and stuff like that can be really, really helpful. And of course, paying attention to your to your portions portion control is important as well yeah and you know all these things they're great like additions to the kitchen um assuming you know someone prepares their meals at home i'm just Mm -hmm. trying to think of like all the other you know women who are always on the go or you know they're eating outside other you know really like kind of good foods or good cuisines to take note of when they eat out? Yeah. So, I mean, what I found is I'm notorious for being that person. It's like, can I add vegetables to that? So pretty much every meal that I order. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I'm usually asking like, can we add broccoli? Broccoli's amazing for balancing the female hormonal system. It's a brassica and you do want to be cautious with brassicas with hypothyroidism. However, broccoli contains DIM. And what DIM does is DIM helps moderate the hormonal cascade. It's the precursor for all of our positive hormones. So I'll add broccoli to things all the time and I'll opt for healthier options. You know, eating on the go doesn't mean that you have to eat horribly maybe find a good food prep person who can help you with easy to bring foods or getting some of those, you know, they have like um, those Evol bowls. They're like the E-V-O-L. A lot of grocery stores are now bringing in high quality foods that are grab and go. I mean, they're still a little more processed, but if that's the resort that you have to go to, mm-hmm. grabbing an Amy's bowl with quinoa and veggies is going to be way better than grabbing some type of fast food. So there yeah. are tons of options available out in the world. Look at the sides, you know, what they have for sides or look at the other dishes and mm-hmm. see if you can modify what you're ordering so that it's made Maybe like, you know, a really yummy chicken breast with a side of broccoli and onions and mushrooms or something like that. So there are a lot of options. It just takes a little shift in our perspective and in the things that we utilize to get there. Yeah, I think that's a good one. Always modifying and trying to fit in more vegetables 
um, into the meal. Um, when you talked about the side dishes, I was thinking of like Mediterranean food because they always have some kind of main dish and then you can order like two sides. So you could have like hummus or like avocado or like, yeah, more vegetables. Yeah, Mediterranean food's great for that kind of stuff. And even fair enough, a lot of like kind of all American kind of places can have options that are just like, you know, veggies and meats. And, and so it's, it's really easy to implement once you start changing the perspective around it. Mm-hmm. Indian food can also be a really great place to go. Sometimes they'll have heavier dishes and things like that, but they're also notorious for having a lot of vegetables as well. And spices too. I love And spices. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Okay, that's great. All this talk about food is kind of making me hungry right now. (laughs) Me Um, too. So just to kind of go into the last healing modality that, you know, you associate yourself with, which is Reiki healing. So what's Reiki healing and how can it help with women's health? Yeah, so I love incorporating Reiki into my treatments. It was a really big up level for my sessions and has really enhanced the treatment efficacy. So Reiki is a light touch healing and a lot of people are like, whatever, this is mumbo jumbo. But when you think about it, everything in the universe is energy everything, our bodies, we are not actually like physical forms. We're just a conglomerations of atoms and molecules and protons and neutrons and electrons. We're just energy. And even I like to refer to faith healing or, um, you know, some of the religious healing or thinking about what you do when you bump your elbow. What's the first thing when you bump your elbow, you grab it and you kind of rub it and you're like, ow. So Reiki healing is really utilizing that energetic force of healing, that energetic alignment of healing. So it's a light touch energy realignment where what happens is we become a conduit system. So we are actually conducting energy through our bodies. And what happens is, is that I've been attuned in the Usui lineage of Reiki and I'm able to help transfer energy from the universe to the body to help the body clear out what it needs to let go of. One of my favorite stories of all time is I work for the Veterans Affairs Association. I treat veterans in my clinic and they send a lot of different styles of people to me. And I have this one really skeptical veteran, you know, not your average person who would come in and get treatment from something like this, but it was referred to him. Mm-hmm. And we got into one of our sessions and I use a TDP lamp, a heat lamp on people's feet or, or other areas that need the mineral and the healing from that. Mm-hmm. And I sit down to do Reiki with him and I'm sitting at his head and I do my thing and I have my hands over his eyes. They're not touching him at this point. They're a couple inches away. And he keeps opening and squinting his eyes and giving me this really funny face. And he's like, you know, trying to like check it out and like look at what's going on. Uh-huh. And I look down and I ask him, I says, everything okay? And he says, yeah, you know, I just thought you put that heat lamp on my face. And it was just my hands. My hands oh, were wow. emitting so much energy that he had thought I had put the heat lamp on his face. Yeah. So yeah. it's a conduction system and it's a really powerful tool. It really enhances the healing and helps the body move through those stagnations and clear energy. And it's very relaxing. Yeah, I mean, that sounds amazing. I feel like that's going to be something that's coming up, you know, after this whole acupuncture, um, you know, uh, phase. I wouldn't say phase, but, you know, like popularity wise. Um, And then so, 
So what is actually one action step that, you know, people can do to help with their hormonal imbalance? I know a lot of this comes from deficiency and all that. So there's always like a disbalance in the body. Um, and so what is like kind of one thing that, you know, women can do to help to try to regulate their body again? Yeah, my biggest piece of advice would be to get back to the basics. It's incredible how easy it is to forget adequate hydration, proper nutrition, exercise, and de-stressing. Like those are my top three getting back to basics right. is to just really realign with the things that you probably already know that are good for you, like getting adequate sleep. Those, those kinds of basics are the core of really increasing your self-care and helping with things like PCOS. So water, nutrition, breath work, sleep, those kinds of things that are just the core of existence and are our basic constitutional support techniques. Yeah, we always forget our basics. And uh -huh. the work we do in the end, it, it might sound all fancy, but in the end, we're just addressing the, you know, the basics of our body, of how we function. <clears throat> yeah. That's so true. And something else I just thought of is I can send you a couple guides. I can send you the guides of foods to clear phlegm and dampness. This is food grade medicine. And you're totally welcome to make those available to the listeners out there and to people who are interested. They're just part of my like nerdy health stuff that I like to put oh, together. <laughs> yes, that would be great. Um, yeah. So where can people find you? I mean, you know, in addition to all these guides, like that would be so helpful. But if, you know, listeners want to find you in their office or in your office or in your clinic, where can they find you? Yeah. So some of the best places to find me are moonmedicinemagic.com. You can also find me at Moon Medicine Magic on Facebook and then Moon Medicine Magic 3, which is not as much health and wellness information as the first two um, on Instagram. So you're also welcome to reach out and find me on the internet, Diana Lane. If you do add me and want to chat, please send me a message so that I have a little bit of context and we can connect further. I'm an open book and I love to share. Yeah, Diana's an amazing person. She's so friendly. Um, and it made me, yeah, it made me kind of want to reach out to you. I, I noticed like this vibe from your site and yeah, this is how we got talking. Totally. I'm so honored to share. Thank you so much for featuring me on your podcast and for all the work you're doing with women out there. It's so needed. And, you know, there's just so many endocrine disruptors out in the world. So informing women about stuff like that is just essential for our growth and expansion. Well, thank you for coming on the podcast. I think, I hope that, you know, listeners will have like a better, broader view of like Eastern medicine. And, you know, I'm hoping that they will also go to their acupuncturist or actually look for more options to help with their weight loss and their PCOS and their fertility concerns. So thank you once again, Diana. Maybe next time we will have you again on the podcast. Awesome. It's been an honor. Thanks so much. Bye-bye.